Welcome to The Something Forum by Echo & Co., a podcast where we talk about digital and organizational transformation, innovation, and nonprofits, and hope you learn something along the way. For this series, we're turning the spotlight on our Echo colleagues, featuring a different guest each week. This week, we turn back time and bring you our unreleased pilot episode. We talked with guest Anna Cassinger, Program Strategy Director, who at the time was a senior content strategist and information architect. She talks with us about digital transformation through the lens of content and her thoughts on what partnering with an agency can look like when working through content strategy. She also talks about how starting projects with the hope of wild success can change the outlook and energy of a team. And now your host, Andy Vanderland. Hi, Anna. Hi, Andy. (laughs) Nice to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for being our first pilot for the podcast. We'll see how it goes. I'm delighted to be here. Can you introduce yourself? Um, Like who you are, what you do, where you do it, those types of questions. Sure. My name is Anna Kassinger. I work in the greater, greater DMV area. (laughs) Specifically, I'm out in Burke, Virginia. I'm a senior content strategist and information architect with Echo. So it means that I spend my days thinking about how I can help organizations uh, connect with and educate their audiences more effectively and how we can make it easier uh, for people inside and out to get the information they want at the right time in the right place. That's cool and complicated. How do you decide like what information people want? Oh, well, you know, it's really a collaborative process and it's not so much about deciding what they want, but combining the expertise of the people in the organization uh, with a lot of user research. So most people who've been within an organization know who they've been serving um, to some extent, and there's almost always the opportunity to learn more uh, through direct interviews and online surveys and any other, a number of other methods. Uh, so we we try and listen to the people who know best about what they want, and then add our UX user experience expertise in figuring out how to put it together. Cool. I'm gonna go a little off book, but script. But what sort of gives you the right to provide this expertise to our clients? Like, what's your education and experience background that gives you so much insight? Well, good question. I. Uh, come from the museum world. So I, I have a master's degree in education and I spent about a decade working in different museums in Boston and in the DC area. Mm-hmm. First working directly with kids, um, grades three through 12 primarily and sometimes uh, three through 16. And then uh, moved into curriculum development and professional development, leading lots and lots of workshops for teachers on how to uh, convey big ideas uh, more effectively, more engagingly, what uh, thinking through with them, both their 
pedagogy and practices? How else can, what other opportunities are there? What are ways that we can think about and explore content and big ideas with other audiences? Uh, and that translates really nicely into the nonprofits base that we work with today. So everybody's trying to educate their audiences about something, whether it's human rights or social justice or uh, animal welfare, any number of things. So the principles and the exploratory nature of it uh, are the same, even if we're not talking about modern art or um, the First Amendment anymore. (laughs) Fair. What would your parent, how would your parents describe your job? I love them a lot. Um, They'd probably say that I help nonprofits do their web work better. Okay, that's pretty And I think that's reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. My parents have no idea. Um, So, yeah. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, okay, so for people who are familiar with Echo and Co, is there something they should know about your work or about Echo that they tend not to know? I think that it's always fun to watch how surprised people are when they discover that the Echo team has such a diverse background hmm. of experiences. I mean, we've come from all kinds of walks of life with different um, focuses in our education and maybe religious affiliation and various identities. Uh, But what's exciting, I think, is that almost all of us have had careers outside of the digital agency space. Um, And that brings, I think, a well-roundedness to the projects that we work on. Um, It makes it easier to say, to play, what if? What if we did it a different way? Because that's what we've all practiced doing in our personal and professional lives. Mm -hmm. And I like discovering that about my coworkers who Mm -hmm. used to be a furniture designer or teach equine therapy, for (laughs) a random example, Andy. (laughs) Just so some random one you picked up out there. Um, do you, so you sort of talked about how the experiences outside of work can, are interesting and probably influence our approach to what we do with clients. Do you, does any of your work at Echo go into your profet or your personal life? Like, do you start content architecting <laughs> parts of your life outside of work? No, actually in some areas I have the complete opposite experience. Uh, One example is that I love buying used books. I just love it. I collect books that will challenge me or interesting or that I've loved since forever and want to reread and reread. Um, But I organize them according to theme and then color and then size, (laughs) Uh, which means that uh, my poor engineer husband has no idea where anything is at any (laughs) point, but it's very clear to just me. So a little, a little split personality there. <laughs> it's called balance. <laughs> there you go. Yes. yes. Are you reading anything cool right now? I just finished 
a book called The Weird Sisters, mm. which uh, is remarkable for its narrative device. We're going to get literary nerdy here, Andy. Oh, uh, it's one of the few books I've read that uses the first person plural. Uh, so we huh. do this, we do that. And it's a reimagining of the witches in Macbeth in modern day Midwest, as they have their own coming of age story and huh. the ability to shift lenses and insights while using this voice is pretty incredible. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to switch over. I feel like I could go down that rabbit hole and like how, you know, the way we talk about ourselves and influences how we engage with audiences, but I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to keep going along this other path um, and talk about more um, specifics on digital transformation. So we're going to do sort of our pop quiz section. Just the idea here is that we give you a question and you give us your thoughts. Um, they don't have to be, they can just be your opinion and your observations. They don't have to be like anchored in data or research unless you have it and want to share. <laughs> um, okay. So what does digital transformation mean in the context of content and information architecture? Well, I'm going to hope that pop quiz doesn't mean right, wrong. Correct. This is... Uh, what it means to me. <laughs> but what I think, when I think about digital transformation with uh, content strategy and information architecture, I think about it in two parts. The first part is how we plan for content. And then the second part is how we produce content. Uh, and what I mean by that with planning is what is it do we know to circle back to the beginning about our audiences we have we work under a shared umbrella of a very high level why at an organization so that would be our mission and, and our vision what we're trying to do but do we can we answer together can we develop and document um, a shared understanding of who our audiences are uh, in terms of what is it that they need, they're looking for, their major uh, struggles and hopes and goals. Um, how are they getting to us? Where are they coming from? What exactly is it we they need? And what is it that we can create that will serve them and help them solve whatever those big problems are? Uh, so the transformation part of that is, is that shared understanding and not, uh, planning, say, uh, editorial calendar around the audience, uh, that's somewhat known by one department, but creating this shared and more nuanced, uh, audience first understanding of our work. So we reframe it a little bit from what is it we're doing every day to who is it we're doing this for and how can we help them solve problems, get time back, get answers that they need. So that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is much more tactical. Uh, it's about the production side and saying, we're here because at some point 
someone got really tired of fighting with technology um, or logistics or uh, understanding exactly the content production cycle from start to finish. And nobody actually signed up for a job that says, I would love to fight with technology all day. That's very frustrating. So when we talk about digital transformation there, we're looking at workflows that have been created, tools that are being used, processes that are in place and saying, is this helping us do what we want to do or distracting us from um, you know, what we signed up to do every day, whether that's research or writing content or working on cross-channel editorial strategy. But can we remove, um, to use a buzzy word or phrase, those pain points to give people time back to doing what it is they want to be doing? So that's it. Just that. In a nutshell. Um, how do you build out, so you talked about coming to this shared understanding about maybe like what change management means in this context for content creation and um, information architecture. Like how do you go about creating that shared understanding and breaking down those silos? Oh, great question. It's a lot of listening. You know, I'm coming in and we as a company, I think overall are coming in with a very strong belief that the our client is the experti- expert in themselves, how they work, their um, mission, what's needed. And we need to spend a lot of time listening really carefully, trying to identify whatever assumptions we're coming in with about what the uh, challenges are. And... Um, through that listening, coming back and saying, okay, this is what I heard from this group and that group Mm -hmm. and this other group about a shared challenge. Does this sound right to everyone? Could we sum up the issue in this way? Uh, And then go through this iterative process of refining and refining and refining so that uh, it's a chance for everyone to find those moments of commonality of going, oh, yeah, that's what I was trying to say or do. I just talked about it in a different way. Um, And there's not a magic question or a magic moment that that gets us there, Mm -hmm. but it, it is about, like I said, talking and listening. And I think the other part of it is... Um, not just saying what are our common problems and how can we understand them together, but also what is it we are working toward that all of us understand that's um, more concrete than a mission, but less concrete than a checklist. So something that we can get really excited about and we know that, hey, once our work is done, we will feel incredibly successful and celebratory if we are able to do X mm-hmm. and have done Y and see Z opportunity coming down the pike. Wow. Uh, 
So if we've got that shared understanding of something medium concrete (laughs) (laughs) on the spectrum of it, uh, that we're all working toward and then a common way of talking about what challenges we have and how we could approach them, then I think we're well on our way toward uh, putting the pieces in place that people need to actually be able to change their website presences or their uh, departmental silos or um, their uh, narrative voice, whatever it is we need to um, adjust to help ultimately serve our audiences. For those examples, like the silos and narrative voice, are those things you see across organizations that you work with? Are there any like common themes that come up? Yeah, all of the, the both of those things are very common. I think any organization that is large, medium to large size that has a long history means that there have been many opportunities for different leaders to come in to have their own visions and goals that they implement. Uh, And when that happens enough over a long enough period of time and transitions aren't managed really quite carefully, you end up accumulating, I think, a number of ways of working at the department level um, that are have responded to different times and different needs, but have not been coordinated. And so you end up with a lot of legacy processes, often way too many tools because there hasn't been somebody in a position to say, okay, pause. We have the time to think this through. Why is it that we have, what even do we have? Let's, let's, go find out what's in all of these drawers <laughs> and and then sit down and think through what it is we're trying to achieve and which of them will best serve us. Um, I have never seen it happen out of maliciousness or mm. carelessness. Choices, you know, almost always are made for good and thoughtful reasons, but it's very rare, I think, in our sector when um, nonprofits are working so hard and there's so much need to respond to and a sense of urgency that we need to respond right away, that uh, building in the time and what can feel like a luxury to say, are we all working together in the way that we would like to be? Do we have what we need? Do we have too much or too little or what, whatever the challenge is? Um, and so it's, it's a, I think working with us, I hope, is a chance to just step out of that for a minute yeah. and get to reflect on what it is we could do in a way that would make us feel more successful, use resources more efficiently, mm-hmm. resources being both money and people's time. Um, and... Um, what would that what would that look like? That's great. Do you have any tips or like best practices for organizations who are starting this kind of transformation? Or I know we work with some 
clients who have started it and then it stalled and started and stalled. So for resurrecting this type of digital or uh, content transformation? Well, it, in some ways, it's always going to be um, custom to the set of people who are in the room. Uh, so I say this not to hedge, but to uh, acknowledge that there will never be a one size fit all fits all solution because that if there were then we would be coming in without actually listening and saying oh we know what the problem is yeah. and the solution for you is behind door number two <laughs> um but i think you know whether it's we're being brought in for the first to try this challenge for the first time or or resurrecting it knowing acknowledging burnout acknowledging mm-hmm frustration, um, that there have been people are working with a content management system or a database or, you know, any series of things that have, that are no longer serving Mm. the organization, which means frustration. So just putting that on the table, letting that be okay. Um, and starting with that airing, airing of grievances, perhaps, uh, but also asking what would wild success look like? Not just short-term success, not just end of the day success, but if we were to feel wildly successful, what would that be? Mm-hmm. And starting to use that both to understand what we want to achieve uh with the project and our time together, but building up this shared excitement and energy again to counteract the drag of, this is gonna be a long time, this is a lot of work, this is something we've done before and it hasn't gone well, but that sense of freshness and hope, I think starting with that is quite important. That's a great, I love the idea of just like not coming in with the answer, but listening and building hope and excitement around something that has been probably very draining for a lot of people for a while. Um, Okay, so we're going to move into our next segment, which is our favorite cringy question we hear in our work. Uh, maybe even internally or sometimes with the various stakeholders on the client side. Um, And so I'm going to ask you what your favorite question or what question you hear um, that is your favorite or cringy and why, if you can give us a little bit more thought about why it's a cringy question or why it's your favorite one. Mm. I admit to this being a little bit hard because I really like those questions. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't we just, because it usually means an opportunity to rethink how I've explained something, Mm. go, you know what, that wasn't um, compelling or clear enough. That's a great answer. I will have to get back to you, Andy. I'm sorry. No, I think you did a great job. You had to get back to me. That's good. I'm coming up short offhand. (laughs) Um, What status quo or like assumptions do people have about digital content and information architecture that are just maybe mm, based in 
something may be inaccurate or that you tend to reject? If- um, maybe not about the professions in general, but in the writing practice, writing for the web, mm. I've encountered a lot this sense that reading on the web and reading something physical, whether it's a book, a newspaper, a magazine, is essentially the same experience and you can Mm -hmm. write the same for both. Uh, And that any adjustments that you make writing for the web that involve using shorter sentences, using shorter words, using fewer words altogether, um, is asking people to quote unquote, dumb down their content, that it's Mm -hmm. insulting both to the people, the subject matter experts who are writing and to their audiences. Mm -hmm. But what we've seen from uh, attention span research and memory and retention research is that most of us at this point when we're online are habituated to multitasking. Mm -hmm. So while somebody is listening to me, they are also flicking through Instagram or checking uh, their favorite news site or texting happy birthday to their moms or whatever. Uh, And when you have multiple tabs open or multiple screens around you, you're going back and forth between two things or three things or four things very quickly, Mm -hmm. but you're not actually literally doing two things at the same time, which means that you have less attention, less ability to process whatever you're looking at on one particular screen. Mm. So it's in everybody's strategic interest to construct sentences, paragraphs, pages, ideas in such a way that acknowledge and respond to um, this multiple pull on our attention. Mm -hmm. Not to say that all pages need to have only three sentences and seven really huge pictures and every other (laughs) one, but rather when we're trying to introduce people to a topic an idea or an idea and we don't know that they're yet a super fan, a super user, we need to stage out the content and that there can be, it's not just okay, it will help with long-term engagement um, if there are pages with varying depths that introduce people slowly to content and then get more and more detailed or technical uh, as they go deeper down a track rather than having everything up top assume um, implicitly or explicitly that people are monotasking. Yeah, that's great. So tell me if I heard you correctly. The idea is that we need to create content that's specific to our web, our website, um, in a way that helps guide users from assuming zero knowledge or interest or very little 
through, you know, super users. So we're going to say like you, we're going to create content for our website that helps guide um, a person from like, we are this organization and you might be interested to know, like we have these three steps to our program. And then they say, yeah, I'm interested. They like mentally commit to it. And then you start giving them more detail, more information. Yeah, that's exactly exactly it. Whether it's about a program or a policy, a topic, um, a uh, value system that you want to nourish, um, something academic that you want them to learn. It doesn't. All the information doesn't need to be up top, and not only is that about making sure that we bring everybody along on the journey, but it's responding to the reality of the way we process and pay attention to mm-hmm. information on our screens yeah. and that people are more likely to process more and become more engaged. If you have, if you make it easier to consume content in small uh, snatched moments of time on the Metro between classes mm-hmm. Uh, waiting in the pickup line, wherever, uh, then asking them to commit up top to reading quite a lot in an uninterrupted moment of time. Yeah. uh, Which is just, um, may once have been the digital habit, but is not anymore. (laughs) Yes. Um, also one thing you said that really struck me was that it's not about dumbing down content. It is exactly this. It's to make it so it's accessible in situations when you're just taking little pieces of time that people happen to have available and are committing to you or your organization. It's not because they're stupid or your content doesn't deserve or like your work doesn't deserve to have all those details around. It's just not the right moment for them to get that information. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it reminds me that it's another way of thinking about being inclusive and accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, under Understanding that uh, people have different ways of processing information. Some of us uh, are more visual learners and would prefer things in video formats. Some are uh, textual, some want interactivity, um, kinesthetic learning, which is much harder online, but still possible. Uh, I see you raising your hand hand digitally there. (laughs) Great. Um, And we don't want to make anyone feel like our content is not for them Mm -hmm. because we didn't know what it is that they needed or how they like to uh, experience and interact with content. And of course, there are always times and moments when it is appropriate to have really deep uh, scientific or academic writing. Um, if you're a research repository, JSTOR, everything that's in those papers are written for a specific audience and you know um who the majority of users are and their backgrounds and expertise. But even then being able to navigate the website itself before you get into those Mm -hmm. papers should be 
effortless. Mm. So that people who have, all of us, an uncountable, unimaginable number of options of places to find information that is the World Wide Web, don't choose to go somewhere else because they couldn't find it quickly enough. It took too much effort, Mm -hmm. mental effort Mm -hmm. to find it on our website. Yeah. That's what would be a shame. And we try and prevent. I haven't thought about JSTOR in a long time. (laughs) 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 I am here for obscure references. whenever you want, (laughs) (laughs) Bringing up some school memories. Um, I also love this idea and I think I would like to talk to you more about it for maybe a bonus episode in the future of how content is used for accessibility and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Because I think we talk about it a lot with, you know, how we design a page or like layouts and that kind of stuff, but really around the content and um, what decisions you're helping clients make in order to make it accessible um, and inclusive. So keep that in mind, because I might ask you to come back and talk to me about that, because that sounds awesome. So last question for this piece, Um, what if you could remove all barriers and constraints to client projects? So maybe if you wanna think about a specific client that you've worked with recently, you don't have to tell us who, what would you do? What sort of magic wand moment would you have as their fairy godmother of content? Oh, you mean besides um, money, giving every organization that needs it as much money as they want to build as they want, um, and wishing for all nonprofits that they get donors as generous in their approach as Mackenzie Scott with that very implicit we trust you. Uh, that's the very first thing I would wish for everyone that we work with. Um, I think in the age of the pandemic, I would magically be able to convene everyone from a client side team and an echo side team um, in a fresh, inspiring space Mm. to kick off a project in person with Uh, My personal favorite tools um, for project kickoffs, which include color-coded sticky notes and crayons. And I used to say spreadsheets, so I'm glad we went with sticky notes and crayons. (laughs) No, sticky notes, crayons, and um, fine point Sharpies in all the colors of the rainbow because those tools give people permission to play. And in the last... Two plus years, we haven't had a a whole lot of time and sense of security to play. Mm -hmm. Um, And as amazing as it is to watch so many companies shift cultures to remote first, Mm -hmm. screens are still inherently barriers. There is, we are not looking at each other face to face. We are looking into our cameras mm-hmm. and our screen, something quite physical mm-hmm. in order to see 
the other person and usually see them from the shoulders up, right? And there's so much that's in body language um, that we miss out on and a sense of uh, community when we are behind our screens. So that's what I would wish for everyone. You're making me all choked up. I think that's so true. I agree. We're missing it. In that fun piece and that play piece really resonates with me and the rainbows, all the things you just said. Have you found ways of bringing some bits of play and fun into your work? Um, I very much try to. Um, I'm a, um, a big believer in um, bringing mixed media to workshops. So having actual paper and a pencil or a pen on hand to sketch and then hold them up to the camera in addition to using really powerful tools like Miro. Um, I really like to ask everybody to be bad at something on purpose. Uh, That is often quite related to sketching and it's not just because I can't draw. <laughs> You're trying to hide yourself in all of the bad sketches. <laughs> <laughs> Gives us all permission to be a little bit messy and to have that, you know, uh, finger in the paint <laughs> feeling and yeah. and bring in that sense of play. Ah, I love it. It makes me really want to meet you in person to just like finger paint on post-it notes. And we'll with you, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. So our next section is toasts. So accolades and successes. What is giving you hope right now? Oh, um, well, I'm always excited by thinking about projects with our clients in phases and when we get to that light at the end of the tunnel moment and then get to shift from that to uh, hindsight and um, being able to do that with many projects with the National Education Association recently has um, been tremendously rewarding as as a team thinking about new ways of integrating uh, content from different microsites that they have to increase views, which in and of itself isn't very interesting, but when it means that more people are learning about uh, key social justice issues, for example, getting access to new vocabulary and ways of thinking about things, then it is very exciting. Um, on a personal note, um, the arts world is tentatively, knockwood, hopefully not jinxing it, moving back into the performance space. Uh, and I am a dedicated singer and being able to uh, sing and perform with my group and for other hear other groups perform uh, is very exciting. It's another one of those be in person together mm-hmm. and share 
um, a common language together that's very exciting. Um, and I always keep an eye on the NPR Goats and Soda blog because more often than not, they uh, feature stories of incredible entrepreneurs and creatives, oh. creative thinkers, doers, um, who do so much with so little and it's always inspiring. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Something Forum. Tune in next week as we continue this Spotlight series with our Echo & Co. colleagues. Our host is Andy Vanderland. I'm Melissa Huntley, our editor. The music you hear in this episode is Something About Something by Sarah, the instrumentalist. This podcast is produced by Echo & Co., a digital agency sending creativity on a mission. Music